confusion about um, who he is and, and how different people are responding to him. Um, we read in, in verses chapter 7 and verse uh, 40 to, to 43 uh, that there were those that, that thought this truly is the prophet. And when they say the prophet, um, that's going back to, to Deuteronomy where Moses said to the people that God was going to raise up another prophet like him who would lead them into a new relationship with God, a new way of interacting with him. And so there has been always this anticipation on the part of the, uh, the people of Israel that, that, that there would be a prophet, the prophet that would come, that would lead them into the place. And there were those who were hearing the words of Jesus, that were seeing the things that he was doing, and they said, this is the one. This is the prophet that we've been waiting for. But there were others that said, how can this be? Don't we know all that, that, that Christ is supposed to come from uh, Bethlehem, from Galilee, uh, that, uh, and yet this man is from Nazareth, and, and just all the confusion that, that came out of all of that. Um, there was division. Some of them wanted to arrest him. Some were putting their faith in him, and they didn't know exactly which way to go. Uh, the the religious elite, the the civic elite, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the and the high priest, they'd made their decision. They knew what they wanted to do with Jesus, and so they had charged some of the uh, temple guards some of the officers to go and arrest Jesus. And so these men, faithfully doing what they were told to do, went to go, and, and as they were there, they heard the words of Jesus and they were dumbfounded. And as they were listening to all of the, the confusion of the different hearts of the people, those that were believing in Him, and they were hearing the things that Jesus was saying, they couldn't arrest Him. And so then they returned to the Pharisees and and. They said, what, what happened? How come you didn't arrest him? He said, this man spoke like no one we had ever heard before. And then the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin got angry at them and said, are you too being corrupted, being tempted, being per, uh, uh, deceived by this man? And there was just this ongoing um, confusion. And then one of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, stands up amongst them and says, how have you already made charges and, and come to a conclusion on, on how you are going to treat this man without any trial or anything? Nicodemus was the one that Jesus had met with back in John chapter 3. And he was taking a risk and standing up for Jesus, at least perhaps not defending Jesus, but at least saying, we haven't gone through the proper process for you to have made this decision of how you are going to treat Jesus. And that just created more to hear that kind of uh, 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 accusation come from within their midst. It just created even more confusion. And, and at the end of it all, we read in verse 53, they each went to their own house. Didn't know how they were going to handle it. All of this confusion didn't come to any certainty. 
And so they just went home and tried to uh, throw their hands up, frustration, what are we going to do? And then in verse 1, but Jesus. But Jesus. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning He came again to the temple. And all the people came to Him and He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, we are commanded to stone such a woman. So, what do you say? They said this to test Him, that they might have some charge to bring against Him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with His finger on the ground. So they continued to ask Him. And He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, He bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It is an amazing story. It is such an encouraging story for all of us who have been caught in sin. For all of us that, that know deep down in the darkness within our hearts there is this wickedness that we can't control that seems to take us into places where we don't want to go and yet time and time again, there we are. And the fingers that point and the voices that we hear that accuse, that, that charge us, that, that condemn us, that shame us, whether they are real voices or ones that we imagine, that everybody's looking at me and saying, oh, what a terrible person. All of those voices that hound us, that pound us, that, that drive us down, that try and, and, and crush us under the weight of that shame. This story, the words of Jesus, neither do I condemn you. <laughs> what wondrous, beautiful words. Now, before we can get too deeply into this passage, we have to deal with a few 
details first. Most of you, if you have some of the more modern translations, will have this passage in some brackets with a footnote. And if you go down to the footnote at the bottom, it says, the earliest, most reliable manuscripts do not include verses 7 to 53 to 811. What? <laughs> we have stuff in our Bible that is not from the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. And, and this has created all kinds of tension and conflict for, for different people. Should this be in our Bible? There, are, there have been theologians throughout history that have seen the, the, the evidence that um, the manuscripts that we have that go back to the oldest ones, the, the ones that, that are earliest written, um, that, that come from reliable sources, that, that generally we have good confidence that what they have to say is accurate. Those ones don't have this story in it. So should it be included in our Bible? Are, are, is, this, is this some form of, of deception that's leading us astray? All kinds of, of uh, questions that are there. Let's look at the facts. The earliest copies that we have that include this story are dated to around 300 AD. Uh, we don't have any copies earlier than that that include this particular story. But there are quotes from this story in writers who wrote previous to 300 AD. Uh, there is one of the key, uh, uh, what, what's called a, um, what's it called? Uh, oh, what do they call it? Anyway, here's the title, here's the name of it. It is Diascalia Apostolorium. Some Latin word. Basically what it was, it was the orders for a church. It, it gave instructions for bishops, um, for church leaders of how they should order their church. And, and there was the claim that this was the teaching that had been passed on from the apostolorum, from the apostles, down through the generations, that this was uh, how, uh, uh, how you were to choose bishops and overseers in churches, uh, what were some of the, uh, the, the key components for how you would uh, uh, do your regular worship services and all those kinds of things. This dates back to as early as, uh, um, make sure I get the right date, 230, 230 AD, so a little bit before 300 AD. Um, in that Diascalia Apostolorium, there is uh, a quote from the story. It's not quoted in, in entirety in the story, uh, but there is the, the description of Jesus um, Whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then the statement that Jesus made, uh, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So we know that this was uh, a story that was known previous to the earliest copies that we have. We can actually go back even further. There is a man by the name of Papias. Uh, we actually don't have any writings of Papias. All the information that we have about Papias comes from one of his followers, Eusebius, uh, a church historian from the 
late second century, early third century. Um, but he quotes Papias of talking about this story, or at least a story that is very similar. It's a story that he quotes about a woman who was caught in sin and, and talks about all of this. He doesn't go into great detail, so we don't have all of the details. But Papias was a disciple of John. So he had direct connection with the Apostle John. So it is very likely that this was a story that he had heard John tell about the life of Jesus through his many sermons that he would have done. And so even though it wasn't a story that necessarily John had included in his gospel, it was a story that was well known early on to uh, the church fathers. And how these things happen, how it got into some of the manuscripts, if you see some of the manuscripts, you can see what, what, what was done was there was the part that was written out that was the actual scripture. But sometimes, as many of you would do in your Bibles, in the margins on the, the papyrus and on the paper and stuff, people would add little extra notes. And sometimes there was extensive stories and, and, and uh, doctrinal explanations that, that were added into the margins. And so what would happen was when that copy then got passed on to somebody else to be copied off for another church that was in this location, sometimes as the copyist was copying those things out, they read what was in the margin and said, hey, hey, that's really good. And, and so they would add that in uh, so that they could pass on to their church some of this other in wisdom and insight that others had had. And sometimes that didn't get into the margin. Sometimes that snuck in over time into the actual text itself. We don't know exactly how this particular passage got into these documents, but we have a fair uh, uh, confidence that this is a story of an actual event, of an actual encounter that Jesus had. Um, and so... How do we handle that? Well, it's probably not a good idea to create some new doctrine out of this particular passage. If there is something that happens in this, doc, in this particular passage that isn't talked about anywhere else in Scripture, and for us to create some new understanding. So if we were to try and create a church of the, uh, the, the writing in the ground with fingers, um, that, that whenever we are, to, we are engaged with somebody who is challenging us, we are engaged in an apologetic debate, that our response needs to be that we write in the ground with our finger. That's what Jesus taught because that's what Jesus did. So that's what we need to be doing. If we were to try and create that kind of a, uh, of a group, an interpretation out of this passage, it's not that smart. It's probably not a good idea. But the, the main focus of this passage there's nothing new here. This is, th these are truths that Jesus clearly taught in His whole ministry. Uh, these are, are, are doctrines that, that the, the apostles then wrote about and encouraged uh, the rest of the church to be following. So we can have great confidence in reading this passage, allowing it to be in our Scripture still, to even take the time to preach from these passages without worry that somehow we are getting people off track or deceiving them. Um, it, this, is, this is very 
uh, very solid ground that we are at. That we are at. So that's out of the way. If you got any more questions about that, come talk to me afterwards. Um, but Jesus, in the midst of all of this confusion of how nobody knew how to be able to respond to Jesus, and everybody else just kind of goes to their home, throwing up their hands in frustration, we don't know what we're going to do. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The story doesn't record exactly what he was doing at the Mount of Olives, but as we read the rest of the testimony of Scripture, we know that the Mount of Olives was a place that Jesus would go to pray. As everybody else is unsure and confused and not knowing how to be able to respond to Him, Jesus knows that God is going to call him to do some significant piece of business coming the next day. And in the midst of that confusion, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the, the, the pressure of, of people coming to arrest him and all of the attacks and everything that was coming against him, Jesus took time to pray. He wasn't one to, to waste effort on throwing up his hands in frustration. We don't know what to do. When he was in a place where he didn't know what to do, Jesus would go to pray. Now you're going to come and talk to me about Jesus didn't know what to do. We're not going to get there. But you know what I'm saying. Because you and I get into times where we don't know what to do. Where there's all kinds of confusion and frustration. Let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's go to a place to pray. Let's hear from God. Let's allow Him to speak into our lives, to guide us and direct us, to bring certainty and, and, and confidence in what our next actions and our next words are going to be. Sleep is not that important. Not as important as knowing what God is trying to say to us. And if it means that we need to lose some sleep one night so we can come to the Mount of Olives and pray, if it means we need to put aside some food for a while so we can come and focus our attention on knowing the will of God and His direction in our life. If it means missing out on some really good church activities so that we can go and spend some time in prayer. Far better that than to throw up our hands and go, oh, I don't know what to do. Let's just move on. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives and then early in the morning, he came again to the temple to teach. The scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always felt that an adultery is really hard to do with just one person. And when somebody gets caught in the act of adultery, I don't know how you come away with just one person out of that. The law is clear. Deuteronomy and Leviticus both talk about adultery and they are both clear that it is the woman and the man. Actually, the man and the woman. 
who receives punishment for bringing that kind of evil into the community. I don't know why the Pharisees and the scribes only brought the woman. It not, doesn't go into detail. Maybe now we could be, give them a little bit of grace and maybe the guy was faster than they were and they could only catch the woman. That's a possibility. There are some that have suggested that perhaps the man that was caught in the act of adultery was a person of important stature. And he had, had in the throes of the excitement of the Feast of Booths, had gotten a little bit too much to drink and gotten seduced or, or drawn into a place of temptation by one of the prostitutes in the area. And in order to protect his reputation, they decided that it was probably just a moment of indiscretion and we could let him go. But let's bring this woman because obviously she's got a problem. <laughs> Not much changes. There's also some, I, now I don't know about this, but there are some that have postulated that it was actually one of the scribes and the Pharisees that engaged in this activity in order that they could have a woman caught in the act of adultery that they could then bring to Christ. And so it was a bit of a setup so that they could then test Christ. Now, I don't know if they had, if it was that hard to find somebody that was in the middle of the adultery. I don't know how hard it was back in those days to catch people in that. I don't know if that's true. We don't have any of the details, but it is significant. It, it shows the heart of those that were accusing. Their, their desire was not to uphold the law. That's not what they were doing. It wasn't that they were offended that there would be such evil that was happening in their midst. No, their whole purpose for this interaction was to trip Jesus up. And it says there in the passage that that's exactly what they were doing. Um, they wanted to uh, test Him that they might have some charge to bring against Him. Now, what kind of charge could they bring against Jesus? What, what, the tension here is, on one hand, the Mosaic Law demanded that those who were caught in adultery should be killed. And if it is a woman, uh, a virgin woman that is engaged in that adultery, that she should be, that they should be stoned. So it could be that this was a virgin, although the other passages in the law don't differentiate necessarily how they should be killed. It's just that they should be killed. But why is that supposed to happen? The law states that it is to purge the evil out of the community. To get rid of that evil influence that is there and, and, and to make sure that, there, that they would be pure. And so, God gave those laws in order for the people to have a means to be able to, to keep themselves from falling into sin. We know how well that worked out. Time and time again, they fell into sin whether there was people that were 
having a, committing adultery or not in their midst. There was no problem with that. Um, but that's what the law required, was that the, the woman and the man be killed for their sins so that the evil could be purged out of the community. The conundrum out of that is that the Roman law at the time said that only the Romans could execute criminals, could, could execute capital punishment in this occupied territory. So here's the conundrum. Here's the test. If Jesus were to say, ah, no, it's not a big deal. Just let her go. He's breaking the Mosaic law. There would be enough reason then for the people, for the Pharisees and the scribes to stir up the people to say, are we going to trust it? Could this be the Christ? Nah, he's, he's disrespecting the Mosaic law. We can't do that. If Jesus were to say, she must be stoned they would then be able to take him before the Roman government and say, this man is, is undermining the authority of Rome here in this community. He must be punished. So either way, they were going to get Jesus. They figured it out. This is the way that it was going to work. And then Jesus began to write in the ground with his finger. Now, <laughs> there's been all kinds of speculation of what that was all about. Let me just start off by saying, I don't know, doesn't say. There are those that speculate that what Jesus was writing in the ground was the names and the sins of everybody that was in the crowd. writing their names, writing down what they were guilty of. So that when he stood up and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, they would be able to see there right in front of them the truth of the guilt that they had. Maybe. Except Satan who's the accuser of the brethren. It's not God's typical role of proclaiming everybody's sin before everybody else. But it, it kind of fits for the response of the people. There are other people uh, that would suggest that Jesus began writing the Ten Commandments on the ground. Which is interesting because we in the story of God, writing the Ten Commandments, used His finger to write those words on the stone. And Jesus is described as writing on the ground with His finger. So it is likely, that is a good explanation, a good connection, that Jesus was listing the Ten Commandments so that everybody would have that before them. And then He says, Whoever hasn't committed any of these, go ahead. Throw the first stone. He did it twice. Two times, that's right. So there was the first time that God wrote, and then Moses came down and he cast down and busted, went back up the mountain and God did it again. Could be. 
That's another explanation. There are still others who say because it isn't, we aren't told about what Jesus wrote in the ground, is that's not that important at all. In fact, perhaps he was just doodling on the ground, drawing little pictures because he was completely uninterested in what these men had to say. And they had to then continue to ask him to finally get him to have some kind of response. And then he made his statement, whoever is without sin cast the first stone and then went continuing on to doodle in the sand. Maybe. Again, I reiterate, I don't know. It's not in the text. And it is interesting to think through those things, but... Ultimately, it's not important. The important part is when Jesus stands up and gives everybody an opportunity to recognize the darkness of their own hearts and to realize that if they are going to be able to accuse others of sin, they need to first deal with the sin in their own lives. And he took all of the air out of their argument. He robbed them of the opportunity to test him because none of them would be able to stand under that kind of scrutiny. And so then as Jesus is done writing on the ground the second time, he stands up and says, Where are your accusers? Is nobody, nobody able to stand up and charge you? And the woman says, no one. And then this amazing, beautiful statement. Neither do I condemn. Now, if this was the only place that we heard those words spoken by Jesus, there may be reason for people to argue this shouldn't be in the Bible. But this is exactly the same thing that we heard from Jesus as he sat with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Let's turn back to John chapter 3 and just remind ourselves of what it is that Jesus said. Now, some of your Bibles, if they are red letter versions, sometimes they don't include these particular verses in the red letters. Mine does, and I'm convinced that this is the word spoken by Jesus. John 3, 17. For God did not... Let me say that again. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. It is not Jesus' job to condemn us. There will be a time when Jesus as the perfect judge will sit in judgment over all of the world. But it is not His job to condemn us. 
but that through Him the whole world might be saved. Jesus was come to save this woman, not to condemn her. Not to execute judgment on her in that moment and to ostracize her from ever having the opportunity of being saved. Jesus came to save this woman and that's exactly what He did. Jesus did not come to condemn you. When we hear those voices that accuse us and point out all of our sin and shame, that's not Jesus' voice. When we look around and we feel the weight of our own sin, all of the things that we have done that have gone against what God wants for us, and there is that weight of shame on our lives, this, this feeling that, that there's no way that God could ever want me to be on His side, that God could ever forgive me. That is not Jesus. The voice of Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come that they might have life and have it in all of its fullness. Jesus came to save us, not to condemn us. And it's so important that we remember that as a church because so often we allow ourselves to hear those voices and to feel like that is the voice of God that is bringing condemnation and shame into our lives. That's not Jesus. Too often we have taken up that voice where we have pointed to others and said, oh, look how awful they are. There's no way that God could choose and save that person. We look at those from within our midst that have made mistakes as if we had never have. But we look at those who have made some mistakes that have made some big ones that we are then able to go back and look with judgment and say, aha, uh -huh. we can't trust that person anymore. That is not the voice of Christ. What does Jesus say to us? Go and sin no more. How is that possible? Because He has paid the penalty for us. He has taken that sinful nature that we have and He has crucified it, hung it on the cross with all of its guilt and all of its shame and has left it there to die. And then He has come and given His Spirit into our lives so that we can walk in a manner worthy of His calling. <laughs> I love 
the way that Leighton Ford said this. Probably some of you are familiar with this quote. God loves us just the way we are. But He loves us too much to leave us there. <laughs> all of your sin, all of the things that you have done that, that, that put you in that place of feeling that shame and that guilt and everything else, God loves you anyway. He died for you anyway. He offers you the opportunity for forgiveness, for newness of life anyway. And then He continues the process of cleansing your life so that those, that sin, that shame no longer has to touch you. And He purifies you, creating in you more and more in His image so that as the world looks at you, we were just talking about this at youth last night, uh, looking at the example of Daniel. How he had 122 people scrutinizing his life, trying to find something that they could use to bring charge against him. But there was nothing. How could Daniel do that? It's because every day he was in prayer. Just like Jesus on the Mount of Olives, Daniel had his times of prayer where he was listening to the to God, He was allowing the Spirit to lead Him and guide Him so that His life reflected the character of Christ. And the only charge that they could bring against Him is that He prayed. That is the work of God. That's the promise that God has for each and every one of us. It's not... It's not the command that excludes us that if we don't measure up that somehow we are excluded but it's the promise that if you will just listen if you will just keep in step with the spirit you will not satisfy the desires of your sinful nature jesus message for us is grace and truth grace in that I don't condemn you. But go and sin no more. Doesn't ignore the fact that there's sin in our lives, but He comes to save us and thus propel us forth in the newness of life, in His holiness and in His righteousness. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why this passage is so important for us to keep in our Bibles. Because it reminds us in a beautiful story of that grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And bring us to that place of trusting in His Spirit to lead us into the place where we do not sin any longer. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you 
that you love us so much that not even our sin and our rebellion against you gets in the way of that love. That still you sacrificed yourself and paid our penalty so that we could be made clean. We could be made new. And then you love us so much that you then continue your process of sanctification in our lives, purification, so that we more and more reflect your perfection. Lord, we need both of those today. We need to be reminded of your grace in our lives. But Lord, we also need to remember that you empower us so that we can go and sin no more. As your people here gather today, Lord, I pray that you would make that a reality in our lives, that we would recognize the deceitfulness of those voices that try and shame, that try and accuse us. And we would remember your grace. We would respond to your grace. And then we would walk forward in your spirit, following your leading and guiding so that we no longer fall for the cravings of our sinful nature. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.